Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's been a few days, but I am back, and today I have a pretty special guest, uh, a UX designer from Bloomberg, uh, Pavel Samsonov. Um, most, uh, some of you who follow me uh, probably also follow him as well, or you have seen us engage in some interesting uh, Twitter conversations, which I enjoy a lot every time it happens. Uh, but a um, couple of words about uh, Pavel, and, and I'll uh, give him an opportunity to uh, introduce himself as well. Uh, he uh, studied design uh, at uh, York Sheridan uh, College, and then he also went to Carnegie Mellon University, where he studied human-computer interaction. And then he worked for three years at a company, uh, WorkFusion, and now, uh, since 2017, uh, he uh, is working as a UX designer at Bloomberg. Uh, Pavel, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, feel free to uh, say something additional uh, to the audience. Oh, yeah, thank you for uh, having me on this podcast, Vitaly. This is, uh, I think, an interesting opportunity for me to talk a little bit about design in, uh, in public, as it were rather than just posting one way on Twitter and uh, hoping that someone responds. Um, one, one interesting thing, I think, to note is that both at WorkFusion and at Bloomberg, I was, uh, you know, the user experience team of one, as it were. And, you know, these, these were companies or teams that had heard that design is good and decided to get just one <laughs> person so it or was, maybe uh, they just picked the best maybe they just <laughs> find the second one who would match your skills yes i'd like to think so so if uh, my experience is is colored by by that by trying to work with non-designers and and uh, trying to build out an ersatz team out of uh you know whatever i had available okay uh, so just to kind of piggyback on uh, what you just said, so when you say you are, you know, the army of one, does that mean uh, the entire Bloomberg Corporation or your specific business unit or specific project? Right. So my team is within Bloomberg Enterprise, which is generally fairly separate from the black and orange terminal that everyone usually thinks of when they think of Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. And we focus mostly on machine processability and uh, the API and the you know big data side of things. So my immediate team is product managers and most of my responsibilities, I would say, overlap very heavily with product management as well. But then also there's the design responsibilities. So I was very fortunate to have very talented product managers to learn from when I started because I hadn't done a lot of that before. And hopefully a little bit of uh, my design rubbed off on them as well. They're using balsamic now, so, you know, baby steps. Okay. Okay. Um, so you are participating in road mapping products in, you know, kind of thinking, you know, one year or six months out, what kind of features will be in, you know, the, re the next release in three months or second release in six months or something like that. So that you, you do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we typically do 
annual planning and then more fine-grained quarterly planning. Uh, and I try to keep around 18 months of, I want to say, design vision ahead of kind of where the, the team is. And a lot of that doesn't get expanded on or gets expanded on a little bit later. But it kind of gives me the ability to not have to wait around for something to do, but say, here's an opportunity that we've discovered through you know background, ongoing user research, talking to customers, looking at analytics. And once the business recognizes that there's an opportunity there, we can move a little bit in that direction. And if they don't, that's not a problem because things tend to change fairly mm -hmm. frequently once you actually get to the execution because we have a standard two-week sprint and we build something, release something, turns out that it's not exactly what we expected sometimes. So there's definitely a lot more flexibility on the ground, even if you know a couple of months out, it turns out that oh, we're not going to move forward with the design for now. Yeah, 18 months is a, is a good outlook. I would say I probably, uh, um, yeah, it, it is a good amount of time, uh, 12 to uh, 18 months. Um, so you mentioned the two-week sprints. Uh, that sounds like it's a, and I mean the projects that I worked on, uh, people mostly try to stick to that two-week uh, schedule. Does that is two-week schedule working for you guys, or other uh, projects or situations where you know one week or three week, for example, sprints would be more appropriate? I think that. From the perspective of sprint planning and execution, two weeks works fairly well for me. A lot of management, I think, really wants a shorter sprint length because one of the things that my developers absolutely refuse to do, which I 100% respect them for, is start <laughs> working on something that's not defined. And the definition for when something is defined is it's gone through sprint planning. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, um, backlog refinement. Yep. Um, and then obviously it needs to be prioritized and added to the sprint planning. So the backlog refinement happens once a week. And then after we've done the refinement and they started working on it, sometimes there's a little bit of rollover. And then we get to user acceptance testing. So the, the time between when business says, hey, we actually need something done, you know, quote unquote, quick win, it can be five or six weeks before it's uh, available in beta to be demoed and then move to production. And a lot of, you know, business managers, they don't like that. They think that the thing they want to be built should be built immediately. And <laughs> then we have a very interesting conversation about how there's no possible way that's going to happen. <laughs> Sounds like real life. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, the methodologies, Prince and Agile and, you know, Scrum, I would assume you guys are using. Um, I consistently see a lot of comments on Twitter uh, where people are throwing, you know, stones uh, at uh, Agile in terms of how, um, you know, teams get fixated on executing against 
agile principles uh, and following the process, you know, the sprint, the the backlog and everything. Uh, and then somehow they get so consumed with uh, this execution that the uh, the quality of the product actually uh, suffers or they uh, forget, uh, you know, what's important or why they are doing that in the first place. Uh, do you what, what's your experience with uh, agile and you can uh, use either Bloomberg or uh, work fusion I mean whatever uh, fits the example uh, best yeah so I primarily want to talk about Bloomberg here at work fusion I was a little bit removed from the pace of sprints and I'm not entirely convinced that we had a set sprint length or it was really scrum uh, it was very much startup culture and founder focused and if someone came in and said this week you're working on this and it better be done by the end of the week you know we stopped that sprint and we started doing something else at work fusion actually i did some front-end development myself uh, and we didn't really have any sprints it was just what can you get done it was a journey time frame yes <laughs> it was absolutely a journey and to be honest i found it very difficult to concentrate on the feature ownership and the design level while I was also focused on the you know hyper detail that you need in order to code because when you're thinking about what if the user does this what actually if uh, if the state of this other element is like that we need to test that we need to make sure that it doesn't break and in the meantime there's no one thinking about what, what's happening with uh, the actual flows and scenarios that you had originally set out to support. So for Bloomberg, where it's a little bit more real agile scrum, I, I also hesitate to use that term um, with full conviction just because, you know, scrum fall, as uh, John Cutler likes to say, the agile theater is a little bit prevalent, I would say, in uh, in, in a lot of teams. In terms of design within Agile, I think the biggest problem is that Agile is a development methodology. It's not a design methodology. You can't have design inside of it because Agile needs to be inside of design. Agile is the execution and learning part of the discovery design execution learning cycle that needs to drive product development. So if you try to say, oh, design must be two sprints ahead or however many sprints ahead of Agile, of the development team, you're never going to get anywhere. But by focusing on delivering value into the Agile cycle through an outside larger cycle, I think actually it works very well. Because, as I mentioned, I don't have a design team that I work with. There is a core design team for the terminal, but mm -hmm. they're even in a different building. So I don't interact with them that much. It actually is very nice to have those refinement sessions and planning sessions with the developers. And they will say things like, you know, I don't think that makes sense to me. Or from a technological perspective, we can't build this. Or it will take, you know, three years. I think at Bloomberg especially, there's a lot of legacy 
uh, infrastructure. A lot of this stuff was built, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And due to the incredible cost of setting anything up in enterprise, our clients are so invested in it that it's very difficult to shift off of it. So a lot of what we do is linking up our web front ends to these, you know, monolithic services that are very complex to maintain. And coming in to the refinement, I'm very optimistic. I bring this design. I say, here is the ideal experience that we want to have. And they say, how, you know, when when do you want to have this? Because there's no way we can get it done this quarter or the next quarter. And we start really winnowing it down to get to the core value that, you know, made us build this whole thing in the first place. Because suddenly it turns out these UI elements, these accelerators that I thought would be nice to have and, you know, would help the client and that tested very well with, uh, with users and with internal stakeholders, suddenly we can't build them or it's going to take a lot of effort to build them. A lot of other things we don't need engineering effort to do because currently they're being done, for example, by support just through emails or manually generating uh, sample files, for example, or uh, some data sets for our users. And there's so many of these teams and so many of these functions that developers are really some of the only people who know exactly the path that something takes from our data gathering all the way to the end user. So the refinement as an artifact of Agile, or perhaps Scrum, has worked very well for me. Um, It is also a little bit frustrating when we build something and then I say, well, here's what we need to build next. And developers say, well, we should be testing what we've actually released. And management says, there's no time for testing. It's not in the business plan. We need to release the next step. A lot of the time, you know, that that first very, very narrow vertical slice of value that we release is going to be the only piece of that design that's released that quarter or that year. So that's not really Scrum's fault, but the the pressure to release something that every two weeks has some value for the user can cut down the scope of what should be done far too much. And the thing that gets released is heavy on the minimum but very light on the value. Mm-hmm. And then people go to me and they say, Pavel, why does this not support my favorite pet use case? And I say, because it's the MVP. We made a business decision and your use case is not in the scope. And that makes a lot of people very unhappy. Uh, are those the same people who were there in the room making this business decision and you were explaining to them the consequences uh, or they were not part of that particular planning? So 
very frequently they are not part of the planning. Sometimes they are. Sometimes the same people who ask us to prioritize things realize the consequences only afterwards. And one of the mm. biggest challenges has been for me personally to reach out into this enormous company as distributed all across the world and find stakeholders who actually understand what needs to be done and bring them into this process as early as possible and you know hope that they're brave enough people that when the big boss asks us to do something or prioritize something in a certain way are willing to say hey i actually don't think that's the that's the order it should be in the problem with that is you know people at least at bloomberg stay there for a long time sometimes the original you know stakeholder for that design is still there and they already think oh it's this is already very well done it's already serving our use case we need to optimize this locally for a local maximum rather than try and seek a global maximum and it's very difficult to figure out for someone who has not been in the company that long which people are the ones who are willing to embrace change and which people are the ones who have a stake in not actually changing what's going on. So there's a there's a good mix of people and you definitely need a lot of communication to figure out how to make use of all of them rather than just you know sit in the corner and and draw wireframes and mm -hmm. you know hope that they ignore you long enough to ship something <laughs> and then put it in your portfolio. Right. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this uh, this phrase that you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate is uh, so much applicable in the UX design space where, I mean, in a lot of situations you uh, look at a product or a solution and y you know that it's 100% best decision and it's doable and everything but then uh if you just cannot convince the other side whether it's you know due to your negotiation skills or just because people don't listen no matter how well you negotiate uh you just don't get it uh and uh when you mentioned uh quarterly intervals uh when you said you know they would tell me uh, well, it's not going to make it into the next sprint. We're going to plan it for the next quarter or next two quarters. Um, I can imagine how um, discouraging that can be for uh, someone who is a UX designer and very passionate about uh, moving all those beautiful solutions into production as soon as possible. So uh, not, 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 necessarily to you know get the glory or anything but to actually make users happy you know because that that's what drives us right i mean that's pretty much the reason why we got into the space uh not to design something beautiful so we feel good about ourselves but to actually make the users of this product um you know happy right absolutely yeah i think though that on the flip side 
as you say, if I design something and it's beautiful and it's perfect and it never gets built, it doesn't make any users happy and it doesn't make anyone more productive or, you know, make their job easier. So I certainly understand the need for, you know, cutting down the scope. Part of me wishes that we had the business discipline to do that before we find out that the project is going to be over time and not after, because it makes it a lot easier to have some breathing space and actually figure out what are the consequences of this, this, this change that we are making? How can we get it to a halfway point that's still providing, you know, a better experience and not making it some kind of strange thing on crutches that doesn't quite work well and then have internal stakeholders come and tell us that we've done a bad job. I think that um, one of the questions you, you sent to me earlier really speaks to me on this theme as well. It's the, um, the question around the challenge of keeping things simple. And I think a big part of why software stops being simple is because people don't plan ahead. And it turns out, oh, we don't actually have time to make this new flow or to create this new feature. Let's just put in a button. And it's very easy for an output-focused company culture to then go to the big manager and say, look, big manager, we've added a button. And they show the screenshot with a button, and they show the demo, and you click the button, and it does something. And everyone cheers and gets their annual bonus. But it's much more difficult to come and say, we've removed a button. Because mm. <laughs> how, do you, how do you prove a negative? You can't. And unless the culture of the company itself changes from output focus to outcome focus or impact focus, no one internally is motivated to actually make it simpler and actually think things through, but they are motivated to make big shiny plans and then put pressure on engineering to deliver them. Well, th this example with uh, removing the button is uh, really, uh, really awesome. I'll actually add this to my arsenal of uh, examples or negotiation points if uh, a situation comes up where this can be applied. This was a, a really good way to frame uh, this particular um, situation. Um, I made a couple of notes uh, when you were uh, speaking earlier. You said um, agile needs to be inside design. Could you uh, uh, elaborate on that a little bit? And uh, and also, uh, if you had an opportunity, like you know, your your team would uh, come to you and say, uh, Pavel, you can change our agile process. You know, remove some parts, add some parts. Uh, change the the workflow of how product flows through design developers testers and stuff like that uh, how would you change that if okay. if if any the first thing i would probably do is completely dissolve every single silo that we have because in addition to your standard silos where you have 
product and sales and the business and the developers, we also have a very heavy siloed structure on the developer side. And we have the team that only does the API, and the team that only does the website, and the team that only does you know, one layer of the infrastructure. And at every single meeting, every single team needs to be represented. And we very quickly run out of space in every single conference room. So the first thing I would do is take everyone, pick the people who have domain expertise on the thing that we're actually working on at every level and bring them all to see clients. This is uh, something that Jared Spool writes about. He talks about uh, user-facing hours. And he mentions how everyone on the team should have two hours with users every six weeks. So it's not a very heavy burden, but it's a very difficult step for a company to take culturally. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, I can see that. developers are not allowed to talk to anybody. Salespeople talk to you know, to, to quote, uh, what's the book? Um, user, user story mapping, that's the one. To quote user story mapping, you know, salespeople talk to the chooser, but not the user. Um, technical account managers, if they're lucky, talk to technical users. Internal product, you know, tries to talk to people. And we certainly do have... Uh, some user testing, but in general, you know, our users are highly paid people who are very busy and it's very mm -hmm. difficult to get time with them. So that would probably be the biggest push for me is take the team, mix everybody up, take them all to see real users, and then start from the very beginning and involve, you know, user testers and involve uh, quality control and involve the developers and maybe even sales in the entire product lifecycle. Because one of the key points of Agile is the unit of delivery is not an output. It's not you completed a story. The unit of delivery is a business outcome. You made a difference. You delivered some value. You changed user behavior in some way. And things like Jira make that very, very difficult because they atomize everything, everything you're doing, all your work into tiny, tiny little pieces. And mm -hmm. they make it very difficult to see how those pieces fit together. Uh, user story mapping talks about a skeletal backlog with one backbone, and then you have user uh, tasks running down based on priority. Uh, we have um, an article I was reading earlier today, uh, Jurian Kammer, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, talks about a different shaped backlog as well. He talks about how Scrum is not going to help you um, reach Agile. On Twitter earlier, I saw someone with a circular backlog um, also focusing on how stories connect together. 
And so I think that would be my second major change. I would encourage the team to abandon Jira, you know, unsubscribe from the license, uh, take down the servers or whatever it is that we do, and just start focusing on what is the value we want to deliver and what are the experiments we can undertake to understand how to deliver that value. Because I am 100% certain that it will not take a skilled, experienced developer two weeks to produce a prototype. But it can take them much longer than that to build the first phase of functionality from that prototype in the real system. And there's no reason we should do that for the MVP. The MVP does not need to be production code. In fact, since you should probably be throwing it away anyway, it's a good idea not to have it be production code. I've made my own prototypes. They were terrible. Uh, I don't pretend to be a developer. My JavaScript makes people cry. <laughs> but, you know, <clears throat> it's, it did the job. And if we weren't so focused on you must produce this much output in this two-week sprint and focused more on how do we understand what to do next, we wouldn't treat, you know, prototypes as throwaway code. And I think that those are really the only two changes that I would make. We would take everyone to see users, and then we would collaboratively work from that point onward to discover how we can give the users more value. This was this was very interesting. Um, you defined the unit of delivery, not necessarily a set of features or uh, an MVP, but a business outcome. That's uh, that that's probably I thought about in the back of my head, but I never really articulated that, and it actually makes perfect sense. Um, if uh, a company started doing things like that, it would be a major overhaul to the process, I think. Absolutely. And uh, like tremendous, uh, huge change management uh, and the stress test uh, yeah, for I mean, the system because people just are not wired like this. If I tried to do that, I'd be fired immediately. You know, I probably wouldn't even make it to the end of the day. But, you know, <laughs> my, if. My, if I could drive the culture shift at the same time, it would take a lot longer, but if we could get there, that'd be incredible. Because mm -hmm. my next question was going to be, if you ever tried to, uh, you know, shift the culture in this direction, and you, um, the fact that you said that you would be fired, uh, I would assume that you have not. <laughs> so... It's actually very interesting because Bloomberg has not so much a product culture, but a very engineering-focused culture. And so a lot of that does trend more towards output than outcome-based deliverables. But on the other hand, the developers themselves are very, very confident when it comes to you know, giving their own stab at defining value. And they have no problem coming to me and saying, I don't think this is the right way to solve this problem. I don't think this is a good use of our engineering resources. So 
there's some challenge, of course, of integrating developers into the design process kind of on the ground level, partly because they already have a lot of work to do, partly because they are also used to doing certain things a certain way. A major part that stands in the way of that cultural transformation is because their incentive structure is not built around talking to us, you know, except at set meetings that usually the leads and the managers do most of the talking and most of the decisions. So I would like to think that I have made small steps and small successes in bringing developers further into the design cycle. I do think that we still have a very long way to go. Are you planning on spending uh, a few more years at Bloomberg, I would assume, to see uh, how much difference you can make? I think so, yeah. It's, um, it's definitely a very interesting environment and I think even though I don't have any colleagues on my team who are designers, I've learned so much already about how to drive design that actually gets built. At WorkFusion, I was focusing much more on making the design and I had, you know, a Confluence wiki full of pixel perfect mockups and everything was material <laughs> yeah, I, design I and everything was beautiful and very little of it got built because I just didn't have the experience of driving the development work. And at Bloomberg, you know, I, I came on, the job posting was titled user experience designer for data governance. When I started, my title was business analyst just because of internal yeah, yeah. bureaucracy. And yep. then it became product manager. And I said, I'm not a product manager. I'm a designer. And they said, sure you are. Now manage this engineering team. And, you know, over two years, I think I've, uh, I've got a fairly good grasp on it. And it's definitely helped me a lot in terms of understanding not just the, the way things work and the way users interact with them, but also how to make sure that under the hood, they work the way that they need to work and how to establish those paths of communication with the developers to make sure that when we build things, they're built with an eye towards what they're going to look like in the end and not just the way was convenient for the infrastructure for those things to be built. So in five years, for example, in terms of the career path, uh, how would you like to see yourself? Uh, what, what role uh, are you seeing yourself in? Would that be, I mean, obviously the seniority would grow uh, maybe like you know the director level or something like that, but would you be a director of uh, UX design or would you be a product director working with marketing people and driving the the customer and the business side of the product? Uh, just just you know curious how a what kind of options uh, UX designers like you have 
you know, from where you are today to about five years out? Well, that's a very big question. I think that especially in the design discipline, you always have the question of, are you going to become a lead and a manager and then a director or are you going to stay a sole contributor? And there are very few companies out there that actually have an advancement path for sole contributors and not just, you know, give them some raises yeah. and leave it yep. at that. So I think I would like to stay more on the design side of things. I definitely do think that having a better understanding of how a business delivers will help me be effective while still focusing on it. You always see people saying designers should learn to code. I don't think designers should learn to code. I think if designers already know how to code, that's great. But usually the thing that's stopping them from being effective is not knowing how to code. It's understanding how the business works. And having gained that understanding in the past couple of years of my career, I think I can now pivot back the way I came and focus more on the design side of things again. I do think that I don't want to proceed, you know, five years from now and further out as an individual contributor or only as an individual contributor, mostly because I think the scope of problems that design faces can't really be addressed just by doing good work. Right. I think that helping new designers develop their skills and helping shape the culture of the company and helping, you know, design as a discipline face the problems with ethics, especially around things like algorithms and data and, you know, user privacy. All of those things, I think, can be tackled more effectively from the position of a people manager with design experience rather than a designer who primarily, you know, just creates design artifacts and design outputs. I will say, though, that also I think I'm a lot better at, you know, talking and tweeting and sounding like I know what <laughs> I'm doing than actually doing it. Mm -hmm. So this is also me being a little bit more realistic that I think I will be more successful helping others succeed rather than trying to, uh, you know, blaze my own path of glory and uh, tripping and falling a little bit. Yeah, that's a great answer. And uh, I 100% agree with you on um, the fact that you mentioned that UX designers do not need to uh, know how to code. Obviously, it's great if they already do. Um, but uh, and those those arguments, they are just never ending on Twitter um, inside our community where, uh, you know, you and I follow a lot of the same uh, people and uh, they, they just keep bringing that up. And uh, every time they bring it up, 
some <laughs> some new revelation you know gets discovered or something i don't know yeah. um but yeah those are in my in my opinion those are slightly different uh skill sets and uh, uh even uh the left brain right brain type of thing uh where uh, and i mentioned that once with doug collins when we uh recorded a few weeks ago um i i i believe i could be wrong but i believe that developers are more on the left brain side of things uh it's uh, it's logic it's uh you know code uh while designer is an absolutely creative job and it's the um right uh right side of the head um so and uh, just like you said i also do enjoy um helping others and guiding others into um making things better or making better things um instead of doing absolutely everything myself um and, and that's why i'm uh, i'm currently uh targeting the product owner role as i'm uh, looking for my next gig and i'm uh, interviewing a few companies um and uh because that and i don't know if uh, you have a product owner in in your projects and how you are looking at this role i don't know if uh, it's appealing to you as a potential next step because you you are also involved in the uh kind of gathering requirements understanding uh what the product will represent and how it will get built and uh if you have UX designers on the team, obviously, they will help you with the uh, core design side of things. Um, do you have any opinion on the uh, product owner role? So I think ultimately, especially in this industry, titles are fairly meaningless. I think that applies to roles as well. We don't really call people product owners. Um, you know, independently of product managers, I think it's a fairly interchangeable concept, at least um, on my team. I think ultimately, you know, five, 10 years out, it's not going to be a separate role, you know, business analyst as well. Everything is going to become more diluted and everyone is going to have a little bit of the expertise that is required. I think that ultimately design is a new liberal art in the classic sense of liberal arts being the skills that a professional or a you know person in society needed to have. I think design is one of those things. And I think that as quote unquote product people, that is to say product managers and product owners, start developing the design side of the business, I think that the distinctions between them are going to disappear because the first thing that designers do is establish a shared understanding of what the direction is and what the value is. And as soon as you have a shared understanding, you don't need you know, a person to maintain a vision of the shared understanding and the shared direction. And you don't need a role whose only responsibility is to serve as a proxy for everyone else outside the team because the entire team is empowered to 
go out and talk to people and question the assumptions that are being handed down to them. I think that it's almost a cliche by now that, you know, design is good for business. Uh, design's value, design, sorry, um, back up a bit. Design-driven companies, as is well known, gained uh, 228% over the Standard & Poor Index over the past 10 years. You know, McKinsey is now saying design thinking is amazing. So I think that as the business becomes more and more design-rooted, design is going to eat business roles alive because we already have those skill sets. We already have the ability to find out what that value is and align everyone with that understanding. But we also have the ability to produce, you know, the actual artifacts of the product. We can build things. We can collaborate very closely with the people who build things. And people without those skills are not going to be able to participate end-to-end -end in the product development process without coming off as micromanagers who you know, are making things more difficult rather than helping the team deliver faster and deliver better. So I think that product owner, product manager, user experience designer are going to become more and more interchangeable and more and more aware of each other's responsibilities. And the same way that, you know, typographers disappeared over the past 70 or so years when desktop publishing became so prevalent, these separate roles will also disappear. And there's just going to be one role. Product person, I guess. I don't know what it would be called. If it would be called anything, it could just be that those skills become skills that you need in order to be employed, in order to actually deliver something useful to the company that you know the latest AI model couldn't deliver more cheaply or better. You need to have this understanding of design skills and the ability to pick up the slack when it comes to any responsibility within the team, whether it's, you know, messaging things internally from the outside, projecting messages from the inside, you know, outwards to the rest of the company. These are all things that designers are very good at, or at least specializations of design. So, you know, the world, the world is changing in a weird way. And I think that the most powerful insights and the most powerful outcomes come from a fusion of domain expertise. You have people coming together and learning from each other and sharing their skills until someone who has two different domain skills from two different domains, you know, most commonly business and product and design these people can now go and say, hold on, what's the real value? What are we actually trying to get the user to do and why? And those insights can be incredibly powerful. Similarly, you know, any quantitative business analyst who's used to working with data 
makes an amazing design researcher because they can take all of the tools that design researchers have and combine them with their skills at qualitative uh, quantitative processing and their skills at domain research and you know consuming standards and documentation at an incredible pace and putting out summaries and reports that make it very easy for everyone to understand what's happening. I think we're going to see a lot of changes to the field as we start picking up those skills from adjacent disciplines and saying, how can I integrate this into my own practice? And how can I take some of my practice and export it and not only make everyone aware that, oh, there's an ROI to design, that it's a good idea to have designers, but make them understand in the best possible way by giving them our skills that those skills are valuable. Because, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof of the value of design is in practicing design. You can't explain it better than if you just teach them how to do it and watch as they figure out for themselves how valuable it is. So it, it, it does make sense that um, the roles will evolve and people will share more and more skills and competencies. Uh, but I, I do have one comment, though, and I would like to uh, see uh, what you think about it. Um, I come from the background uh, and the experience of uh, fixing a lot of problems in uh, primarily large enterprises uh, that were uh, driven by bad process and the um, immediate part of that was lack of ownership. And by ownership, I mean is that I believe that every single part of the process, uh, depending on you know the scale, uh, e either the entire process should be owned by uh, one person, or if it's uh, too large, uh, parts of it should be owned by different people. But then uh, the overall process would still be owned by one person, um, and. This, I see the same issues in technology where um, without one central decision maker, things go sideways very fast. If um, one person makes a decision to do something to the product, then uh, somebody else uh, does a different decision to do something else to the product. And at the end of the day, we have problems with the product and we cannot trace it to uh, the person who is ultimately uh, accountable. So in, in your opinion, because uh, you, you deal with this every day, I'm sure, or every week, um, about design, a lot of decisions are uh, made, the, the critical ones, the, you know, kind of executive decisions, right? doesn't mean that it's a EVP, but uh, kind of hard decisions. So that the team or a developer would say, uh, or a UX designer would say, we need to do this. But then at the end of the day, uh, just like you gave examples from before, uh, people 
do not buy into your vision and they do not uh, put your UX suggestions into the next sprint and move it out to the next quarter. So when they do that, it is called an executive decision and they own this decision. And this tells that they have a certain stake, a certain ownership, uh, whether it's a full ownership or partial ownership. But at the end of the day, they had the authority to override your suggestion. So, and the reason I, I I personally do think that the product owner, whether you call it a product owner or something else owner related to the product, but uh, somebody should probably be making those executive decisions because you cannot just, you know, vote, for example, you you get together the team of 10 and if you get six votes you proceed with the ux design feature for the next sprint uh it doesn't really work like this so so what's your opinion in terms of the ownership because uh, it's something that i'm very passionate about whether it's uh, product design or process because uh from my experience and uh, i have a lot of that um consulting experience where you basically go in uh analyze uh, either the entire business unit or a company or uh, financial statements operations and things like that and then uh, when you start talking to people and because uh, you know data kind of tells you a story and then you tell uh, talk to people and uh, in 99 percent of the cases uh, there's just complete lack of ownership uh, nobody knows who is responsible for what People make certain decisions on the spot because they don't really know who to go to to validate uh, the assumption or something like that. So what's your opinion on, uh, given the comment that you gave uh, on, uh, you know, everything being fluid and uh, um, sharing skills and uh, teamwork kind of driving the design? Uh, how would you see that perfect uh, ownership of the product? Because at the end of the day, somebody should be making certain decisions whether we, you know, add this feature or not, whether we accommodate the user's request or not. Um, what, what do you think about that? Right. I mean, that's a very fair question. And to be clear, I absolutely do not recommend that anything be owned by everybody. At WorkFusion, around the time, a little bit uh, before I left, the COO had introduced several new principles. Um, and they, some of them were radical candor, it's not not your job, and a more flat structure. So the idea was that everyone would pitch in and do what needed to be done and you know help apply their skills wherever they were needed the actual result was that it turned out people did not respect design expertise and would offer a lot of complaints but because i was ultimately still the one on the hook for delivering it they wouldn't actually contribute so a lot of people were sitting around and complaining and ultimately, no solution ended up being good enough because it didn't satisfy everybody's use case or hypothetical use case because, again, these were not the users. 
these were just people at the company. So I absolutely think that there needs to be ownership of decision-making, but ownership of decision-making needs to come with actual authority. People say, oh, product manager is the CEO of the product, but try to fire someone, see how far that goes. For product decisions to be executive decisions, you need to have executive power. You need to be able to say, I am the one whose responsibility and whose role it is to decide. Because if it's me and the development lead sitting in a room and he has 10 people reporting to him that will do the things I'm asking him to do and I ask him to do something and he says, we don't want to do that, I can't make him do anything. The responsibility for me to do it is on me, but the actual ability to do it is on his team. So there's definitely a big problem with design teams as they are today, precisely because of this imbalance. This is why I think that dissolving business and design responsibilities together will actually make teams much more able to resolve this kind of issue. Because when you have the business leaders saying, from the point of the user experience and the value that we're delivering for our users, we must do this, then the people under them have to respect that. In general, I think that there's a big difference between people sharing skill sets and sharing an understanding of who the users are and what the value is and a flat structure with no clear responsibilities, you know, those are absolutely not the same thing. And I think that part of the crisis with the rewarding individual contributors can be resolved more easily if you're actually able to elevate them through the existing structure while not forcing them to reject the, you know, design skill set and the design focus that they have. Okay. Um, maybe we can use a quick example and uh, we will be, uh, uh, we are rolling over one hour and I think we'll be uh, wrapping up uh, fairly soon. I have uh, one more uh, fun type of questions for you, mm-hmm. but uh, um, let's say Bloomberg.com. Right, yeah. I uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan. Uh, that's pretty much the only news website that I go to uh, because uh, not only I like the design, and I, I don't know if you you know directly work on this website or you work on different uh, systems, uh, but uh, I I do like the design. I actually a few months ago I even tweeted a screenshot of. Uh, Bloomberg.com, the desktop version, um, that it's just very clean, uh, very simple and very clean, black and white. Um, obviously, the the images are uh, color images, but uh, the black and white, uh, very clean uh, looking interface is very appealing. And uh, also from the uh, uh, content version and, uh, standpoint, I, I do appreciate that 
it's not you know toxic right like i i cannot go to i cannot really think of any other website that you would go to and you would not be uh, drowning in this you know political mess and you know people expressing toxic opinions and things like that and and maybe uh, it's because I specifically don't go to Bloomberg Opinion because uh, obviously that's where you know this stuff might be. But uh, I just kind of browse the uh, the main page and uh, open up some news about the economy or stocks or whatnot. Um, but uh, if we take this uh, Bloomberg.com as an example, and in the context of ownership that we are talking. Um, and, and again, um, maybe uh, you don't work with this particular product at all, but uh, is there a, a very specific product owner of Bloomberg.com? And if there is, what kind of uh, authority does this person have over certain design decisions? So I actually don't work with that team. News is a separate part of the organization. Um, I do know one of the designers that works with that team. So the the way that the core design team is structured is a consultancy model, model or like an agency model where they will go from their central team and work with these different products. My understanding is that they work with the business to create a design that the business approves of and then they come down to the developers with the backing of the business and the product managers working with the developers are responsible for implementing those designs so it's a little bit of a complex and slightly roundabout structure but ultimately the the business leaders of that unit would be the ones who go to the UX team and say, can you please come in and help us out and find some ways for us to improve our product? So there's an there's a very strong backing from people in positions of authority to implement this kind of uh, recommendation. Mm -hmm. And so kind of quickly going back to uh, something you said earlier where uh, a product manager uh, would go to a development team and try to convince them to do something for him. But, you know, the development team, the the product, the development lead may not necessarily be interested in doing that. Uh, so would the authority um, from the top, like in this very example, uh, do you think that would be enough for the product manager to kind of, you know, not, not to necessarily put his foot down, but to say, hey, I have this uh, approval approval from above, and then the development lead would not give him the hard time, or, or do you still see that uh, kind of hard time scenario happening? So I do think it would definitely help a lot because you get that backing and you're able to say, this is not just a whim that... I have. This is not just a whim that the product team has decided to follow through on. This is a requirement and it's a requirement that's made by someone, you know, above me. Typically what happens with uh, Bloomberg is that 
the engineers are in their own organizational structure mm-hmm. and management meets with engineers on their level and then the directive comes down through that path so if it's a if it's a major change then the engineer's manager is able to to communicate the necessity for that and i think that if as i mentioned earlier you know design skill sets were more widespread and the process was to bring everyone in and make everyone understand the value of what needs to be done it would be a little bit easier to communicate okay we're not just doing this because you know, Mr. Big Boss said so. We're doing this because it will help us deliver this value. And everyone involved already recognizes that this is something that's important to do. They may not agree that this is the correct implementation, but that's when you can proceed into, you know, real agile testing and experiments and start learning from what you're putting out there. When you have an emphasis on build the thing because I told you to build the thing, you start falling back into the build trap. You start looking at outputs over outcomes, and suddenly it's much more costly for the developer to say, okay, I will build this. Because if it's built and it's not the right thing, no one wants to have to stand there and have the manager say, you built this poorly. No one wants to take that blame. So mm-hmm. part of it is just reducing the cycle time, making sure everyone understands the value of what's being done in the first place, and then being able to say, we did not expect this outcome. We need to adapt, and we are able to adapt in our process because we have included the necessary slack for that and we're focusing on outcomes which we haven't obtained rather than outputs and now we've built something and we don't want to you know make changes to it because in our final report on the outputs we've created now instead of two items we only get to put one item and next to it we get to put and then we redid it because ultimately Design is never done. You never have the perfect experience. So coming in and saying, oh, we're done. You know, now the big boss is happy and wants to do the next thing is incredibly counterproductive because you need to reevaluate every single time you've released something. Was that the right thing? And based on what we've learned from releasing it, what is the next most valuable thing to build? And it could be changing what you just built and it could be something completely different but everyone needs to be on the same page and i think the more people have the necessary design skills to appreciate how to actually look at value the easier that conversation will will get absolutely agree yeah so we are down to uh, that last fun question uh, i would love to uh, hear your opinion um, 
you know, every day we use products, you know, just to start with, you know, the phones, iPhones or Androids, and then a bunch of apps. Um, So if tomorrow, let's say you could become a chief design officer at, you know, pick your own company, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, whatnot, um, which company would that be? And what would be the first three things that you would do in the first week or month, depending on what those uh, things are. Because, you know, I, I personally, th- there are so many opportunities uh, for those uh, products to be improved from those companies. And uh, I, I just, it's mind boggling to me why, uh, you know, years go by and very uh, apparent issues, they just do not get fixed or uh, get even worse. So uh, would love your take on uh which company would you like to become at uh, chief design officer and uh, what exactly you would start doing? So I may have thought about this question from completely the opposite approach because looking at Facebook and Google, it's very, very obvious and really Amazon as well in a slightly different way. It's very obvious the work that would need to be done and almost all of it is around, you know, the fundamental business models being ethically very problematic and the features that they put out, um, especially in the case of Facebook, focus almost completely on engagement metrics rather than actually bringing measurable you know, value and happiness to people. So Google yep. and Facebook are right out. Amazon is right out. Apple, I think, the entire design Twitter has had enough posts about how, you know, they cut their wrists on the the edge and their cable is broken again and the new one costs $50 and has a large dongle you have to carry. I think <laughs> all, all of that has been said and done. So I think I would have to go with Microsoft. And the reason for that is pretty selfish because before I was into you know, the enterprise side of things. I was very, very interested in, you know, physical computing, human computer interaction, and just computing in the physical dimension rather than here's your keyboard, here's your mouse, here's your screen, and we're only going to look at the changes we can make on the screen. Because Microsoft is in an incredible position right now. They essentially own enterprise software. Every single company you go to uses Excel. Every every single stakeholder will tell you, can we make it look like Excel? Can we make it work like Excel? Everyone mm-hmm. knows how to do you know, lookups and VBA scripting and a lot of things that I barely understand. At the same mm-hmm. time, Microsoft has the Xbox division and Microsoft has HoloLens and Microsoft has Surface Hub and they've done incredible things from the perspective of you know augmented reality, virtual reality, um, motion sensing, motion tracking um, and really very very interesting UI design both from the perspective of again Xbox, if you think about video games, they take 
a virtual context from a very, very different point of view than a user experience designer would. And I think that Microsoft has the best opportunity of anybody for taking very unconventional computing, you know, augmented reality, and then taking productivity and enterprise and saying the future is remote work. We have experience with these productivity tools. We have experience with these virtual augmented spaces. And we have experience with unconventional interfaces that are still very easy to use and almost fun to use. How can we bring all of that together and essentially own the future of collaborative work? No one else is in the position to do that. No one else controls all of these technologies and all of these properties. And no one else is in a position where they almost have to do it. Look at what Microsoft did with Windows Phone. They got destroyed by the iPhone. And they came mm -hmm. back and they said, we're going to make Windows Phone uh, 7, I believe, was the one where they said, we're going to do the Metro UI. The Metro UI was the first change to icons in 50 years, early 1970s. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the concept of icons had been created and here's this picture and it represents an application. And then until, you know, when Windows Phone 7 came out, it was the same. The icons got prettier, you know, they got shinier, trends came and went, they had more pixels, but they stayed the same. And Microsoft said, we're going to do something different. We're going to have a UI paradigm where you do scroll in both directions. Icons move, icons change, icons contain content. They almost get cut off by design to hint to the user that there's something in that direction. There's more space there that you can expand your view into. And people didn't like it. Um, one of the guests when I was starting, studying at CMU for a seminar was the guy who originally came up with icons. You know, amazing, right? And I asked him, what do you think about Windows Metro? And he said, it's horrible. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and so Microsoft was willing to take that huge risk. And I think that combining that attitude with all of the technology that they have their hands on, all the design expertise, both in very, very super conventional interfaces like Excel and incredibly unconventional interfaces such as HoloLens, such as Hub, such as the Xbox, and bringing all that together, it's maybe not a guaranteed success, but I would absolutely love to see what they come up with if they bring all of that together. And if they're successful, I'm not going to have to commute on the New York subway anymore. And that would make my life personally a whole lot better. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I never heard such a uh, passionate opinion about Microsoft. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I do enjoy the Windows 10. Obviously, it's a uh, day and night uh, between the Windows 10 and earlier systems. Um, very... Uh, 
smooth and fluid and uh, has his own, its own you know minor issues but for the most part i am uh, pretty happy uh, with the system i i did install linux on my machine as a second operating system uh, to um, you know take advantage of uh, the security and uh, stuff like that because you know i don't know whether windows is has you know significantly improved security wise but the perception is still there that you know all those viruses and uh, things like that uh, they uh, target windows and windows uh, have not been has not been historically very well at uh, containing uh, those viruses and things like that um, so do you see any uh, just to kind of close that out do you see any opportunities that uh, and by opportunities i mean something that should be done in a different way uh, and kind of reframing that question if you would do anything if you became a chief design officer at microsoft uh, do, do you see any uh, broken things uh, currently in their uh, ecosystem or in their designs i think that there certainly are a lot of small annoying things to be handled in the productivity suites certainly excel masters you know the people that depend on microsoft for their day-to-day -day software they don't really hate change but they hate the changes microsoft has made to excel and um there's a fantastic article by uh christina Wodka, i think i'm pronouncing that correctly i hope on um, on this and she says users don't hate change they hate you and i think <laughs> microsoft could learn something from reading that article about respecting the expertise that users have built up over you know the past over 20 years of using windows and of using microsoft products that they decided to go and change and add the the ribbon that's not very popular and then moving things around and introducing things like you know outlook which quite frankly is not very good and i'm trying to think of there's there's always a microsoft alternative to a more popular tool you know there's there's edge which is the browser you, you use if you're stuck with it. There's Outlook, which is the email client you use if you're stuck with it. There's um, whatever their server solution is, which also no one really likes to use unless they have to. So I think a big part of that is take the people who already know that stuff, respect the reasons that they are using it if they choose to, and build on that as a core instead of constantly trying to play catch up to you know what google is doing in terms of very trendy very slick design or what apple is doing in other areas and trying to emulate them and be them i think microsoft has a history it's not a cool history but you know people people were happy using those tools and really making sure that they don't lose that value and they can capture 
more users just through you know respecting their skills i think it's uh it would re severely reduce the amount of complaints that people have i mean with uh with windows 8 when it came out i had to oh google God, yeah. i had to google how to turn it off you know i've, <laughs> I've been using windows for a very long time and i'm just like okay time to shut down my machine i don't know how to do that and note note that i didn't bing it i googled it because bing is another example of you know the the microsoft alternative solution that no one really uses and that really needs you know a little bit of uh of polish to to make it stand out more so the, this example that you gave with uh, respecting the skills is actually absolutely awesome. I'm going to make a note of that and uh, use it in my conversations where it's applicable. But uh, it's actually really powerful because there, there are so many cases um, and, uh, you know, that uh, Ribbon is one of them. And uh, on Twitter, you see consistently uh, not necessarily microsoft products but uh, apple uh you know I, I cannot think of the apple example uh, especially me not being the apple user but uh yeah people have been doing something for 10 years and uh, everything has worked fine and they're so used to it so they don't even think about it uh, kind of like automatic push this button move the mouse it's like uh, literally uh mechanical memory at this point and then they just absolutely uh disrespect that uh, uh body the the mechanical memory that uh, you have built up over the years and they ch make a change uh yeah i mean that, that's a that's a great example that's a great word a great way to actually uh, articulate that uh respecting the skills uh that people have developed um, that, that was a great answer. Thank you, Pavel. Um, so I, I think we're going to be uh, wrapping up. Um, is there anything you would like to, uh, is there anything you think something important we may not have uh, mentioned or there's some kind of a message that you would like to uh, send to uh, the listeners? Because obviously uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast uh, are, you know, inspiring uh, UX designers and uh, things like that. Uh, so uh, just, you know, feel free to say uh, whatever you want to say before we uh, wrap that up. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, ultimately, I just want to add that it's been a great experience. This was my first podcast I've ever been on, and it's a lot less terrifying than I thought it would be, especially <laughs> because it's not live and you can definitely you know, edit out some of that stuff later. Yep. So if, uh, you know, if, if I'm hilarious and insightful and someone else wants to invite me to do a podcast, I that would be fun. Awesome. Hint. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and I will put the, the link to uh, pilesomsonov.com into the uh, episode notes so people will be able to uh, easily track you down so and, you know, follow you on Twitter and things like that. Yeah. Great. I mean, I, I haven't updated that site in a while, but you know how it is with a designer. And, and I'll include the Twitter link as well. Yeah, so you're, they're, they're you're always updating you. your site. <laughs> All, right, All right. Thank you. 
Awesome. Well, uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, it was a very insight- insightful uh, and very enjoyable conversation for me. Uh, hopefully uh, you enjoyed it as well. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in.